or something along the lines of that. Anyway, I got it wrong. I know I definitely got it wrong, but nobody complained about it. Because nobody And that's, that makes me sad. Yeah, I can understand that. Hey, nice green band. No, right? Way better than the blue. Yeah, I want to get a different color just so I can mix it up when I'm in a different mood. Okay, so here's the really weird thing. I went to the National Gallery the other day. Yes, I went to the, the Tyrell exhibition, which is all about light and per- space and perception. And perception, it's really it was really cool. I've been, it's awesome. I went twice. Yeah, like I, I I don't go to the gallery ever, and when I do, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> when can I go for lunch? Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And the, one of the one of the uh, art pieces is a essentially a room with kind of curved white walls i assume they're white it's really hard to tell because the whole thing is flooded with like colored light is that the one you stand in yeah you, you go little, inside of little it. booties you put in on little boots little like yeah slipper things and uh you go inside of it and you stand in there for like eight minutes yeah it's awesome like and it feels like you're standing when i did it, it i felt me, like i was standing in the sky it like makes was, me think of the uh charlie and the chocolate factory movie where they go to the they're in the television studio it made me think of exactly that same thing as well <laughs> it's 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 that feeling but it's it, the the funny thing was when you go in there kind of like the light kind of changes color yeah and at one point it goes it went green while i was in there and my band my green band went white went white yeah and the really weird thing is when my watch lit up with the big colored numbers on it uh, which are normally also green, they were like a red color. There you go. It was so it was really trippy. I went to a thing at Questacon yesterday uh, about perception. Questacon is a uh, science center, national science center. Yes. And they had a show about perception and illusion and things like that. And one of the things they showed was uh, like a photograph where it was highly saturated, but the colors were inverted. If you've got a photograph, ha- try inverting the colors in, you know, Photoshop or something, making it full, really saturated, um, and then do another version of it that's black and white, and then like create a keynote presentation or something with the inverted color one on one slide, and then the black and white one on the next slide. And what they did was they put the inverted color one on the screen and said, "Okay, everyone, look right in there." They had a red dot in the middle of it. They said, "Look at the red dot for ten, fifteen seconds," and then they switched to the black and white slide. And for the first about three seconds after it changed from the inverted color to black and white, uh, you saw the real colors, like the original, huh. you know, which wasn't there, right? It wasn't a trick of the computer. They didn't insert a, you know, a transition where they transitioned through. But it's because your eyes, your, the cones in your eyes, which res- respond to light, colors of light, get saturated by certain colors. So they start to overcompensate. So where it's seeing, like, I don't know, really, really dark green, it starts to kind of overcompensate for that. And so that then if you go to black and white, the absence of that green suddenly becomes red. Yeah, on right. The black and white. It's like it's just by by yeah, by altering the light, it's just weird. So that was obviously what was happening yeah, with the Terrell sim- thing as well. Similar thing. It the, was you, it was trippy as did you go into the room that was pink and yeah. then you turn around and come back and suddenly the room that you were in that was what kind of white is actually green. Yeah. But it's not green. And uh, also, while I was in there, like I was wearing at the time, I was wearing I've got a Spider Man hoodie, and the red parts of of my Spider Man hoodie were yellow. Yeah, okay. like, <laughs> it's just so, weird. 
It just it messes with your brain. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, that was awesome. They also had a thing that I didn't get to go in because you had to book in, which was like a, a sphere that you could lie down on a bed and they'd slide the bed into the sphere. Oh, right. I didn't get to do that. Yeah. And then inside the sphere, there's no shadows or no corners. It's just pure light, right? So there are no surfaces that the light could cast a shadow on. So you imagine being in a light-filled box, but you can't actually see any, like the light appears to be kind of infinite and then they just flash different colors of light i can imagine that would be kind of terrifying for people yeah who are i think scared of small spaces or whatever yeah i, I could imagine it'd be, well would it feel like a small space or would it feel like an infinitely large space well, it, is, you'd feel completely disembodied <laughs> it'd be like it'd be like you had just gone into like the matrix and you're in that bit where where, where it's just you know, white and, yeah stretching and off the gun, forever the gun racks come sliding yeah, in except there wouldn't be gun racks it'd just be different colors or would there i don't know hi You are listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show where we talk about mobile development and apparently art exhibitions. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hello. And Ben Trengrove. Ben. Ben Ben Trengrove. We've lost Ben. Oh, that's right. We've lost Ben. He's um, Googling it up. He's at IO. Oh, he's at IO, is he? Or on his way or something. Oh, okay. Right. Or he's on his way somewhere anyway. He's not here, that's for sure. And it's also hosted by me, Jelly, aka Daniel Farrelly. You're not at Google AO. No, I'm right here in my on my chair. Okay, in the office. And this is episode number fifty-eight. Wow, I think. Does that mean we've been doing this for two years? We have been doing it for, for more than two years at this point. Wow, I feel old. And this this episode is also supported by our Patreon use Patreon users, our Patreon patrons. Thank you very much. So, at the la- end of the last episode, uh, you teased us with your love of storyboards. I can't believe I'm letting you talk about this. And can I tell you, it's ever since I've been inundated by people saying, what is it? What Tell us. What do you love about storyboards? You can't leave us hanging like that. Nobody asked you anything, did they? Maybe one person might have. Maybe. I don't know. Was it? Was it you? Sending a message to yourself could have been. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one who loves storyboards. Maybe. So tell us why. What I mean, obviously, we know that you love storyboards, but tell us what was what kind of brought that on. I feel slightly embarrassed admitting this because, despite my ongoing love of storyboards and propensity to use them whenever I can, there's still a lot that I'm learning about them, and I've discovered some things that have been in storyboards for ages that I just haven't known about until now. And now that I do know about it. I love them even more. Right. This probably began when I was doing some watch kit stuff because trying to cater for the different watch sizes, surprisingly, I had to do a fair bit of tweaking uh, for the watch kit glance I was doing between the 38mm and the 42mm watch to get things to appear on the screen in the way that I wanted. I think it's probably because the screens are so small, every millimeter sort of matters and that you're trying to make best use of that small space without cramming too much on the screen and squishing everything too close together still trying to lay elements out with as much control as you can i guess and that's where i discovered the ability in a storyboard to set different properties on elements within your views depending on the device the storyboard is running on so i didn't know you could do that so like so like how you can turn off and on constraints and stuff in the utilities right so you can turn off and on Heaps of stuff. So, for starters, I guess talking about WatchKit in the first instance and then 
generalizing to storyboards more generally. Um, you can turn off or on whether a thing is, is in the storyboard. So it's called installed. So you could have a group within a watch glance because that's a kind of container for views in, in the watch UI. It's called a group. And there's a little tick box whether or not that group is installed. And so you can switch between the 38 mil and the 42 mil configuration for your storyboard and choose whether a particular group is installed in a 38 mil version or in the 42 or vice versa. Right. You can do the same thing in storyboards. So you could drag a UI image view onto your view and set a size class and say, in a particular size class, this image view is installed. And in a different size class, the image view is not installed. And that's kind of handy. You can basically edit multiple versions of your views in your storyboard for different size classes and choose that for a given size class, which elements are installed in the storyboard. So which elements are actually loaded and a part of your view hierarchy. Yep. And then also you can adjust constants on any of your constraints and you can adjust whether constraints are installed or not. So whether they're active or not. So that combination of things, basically through discovering it in WatchKit and then finding it also applies more generally. Um, I've been able to do sort all sorts of cool stuff. So um, at the moment, I'm doing an iPhone version of an iPad app, making the app universal. So making sure its view will work fine on iPhone as well. Um, and I'm amazed at how much stuff you can do just through that combination of size classes and changing the constants of constraints or changing whether or not constraints are installed. Like I kind of realized from the videos and sessions I saw at WWDC previously that size classes were a thing and you could tweak constraints between size classes. But I really, for some reason, had in my mind it was really about tweaking. Whereas what I've now realized is that you can completely have, I mean, basically you can decide which elements appear in the view of of all the elements that you've got available to you. Some of them you can turn off and others you can turn on and completely have different sets of constraints that apply. So for example, in one of the views I was working on, I had um, a layout where there were three elements uh, horizontally arranged across the screen on the iPad. Yep. And in the iPhone, I changed it so that those three elements were still on screen but were vertically stacked. And basically, it's a completely separate set of constraints that apply in those different size classes. So it's not sort of just tweaking parameters to sort of change a flow layout from horizontal to vertical or something. You know, you could almost think of them as separate storyboards in some ways, but instead of having to cut it and paste and have duplicate elements kind of defined in two different places in the storyboard it's a single storyboard single sort of scene within your storyboard uh, and you just have two sets of constraints that apply between the two size classes so i'm uh, sorry if everyone already knows about that and is just rolling your eyes going yeah come on that's how the, the whole point of them i hate to, i hate to tell you but i mean i i don't really use storyboards i have used them because i've used them for work related stuff but yeah i knew about yeah, this. of course everyone knew about it yeah it's just me who loves storyboards so much. Didn't I actually got which a really is kind of embarrassing at one of the one of the projects that I did for the design agency that I am now no longer at. One of the projects that I did for them, I had to uh, I had to kind of build a a very visual kind of interface for for something. It was mostly just like a splash screen, not not a launch image, but a some kind of a splash screen for something internal in inside of the app. It was basically like doing a Photoshop thing, that, but it needed to be working on a bunch of different sizes. So it was a lot easier to do it as a storyboard mm. as opposed to, you know, maths, which I still prefer. But the, th- I mean, at the end of the day, like it was, I was designing something that was m- mostly visual. So I'm using a visual tool mm. kind of made sense in that instance to me. So 
that's what I did. I used storyboards, and that's one of the things that I used is these kind of turning constraints off and on. And one of the things, one of the other things that I used as part of that was uh, the ability to you can actually specify additional images in an asset, like an image asset. You can you can specify different sizes for different size classes. I had no idea you could do that. Yep. So normally you get. Normally you get like your, you know, one times, two times, three times, right? Yep. If you go into your sidebar, you can actually turn on uh, device specific. You can do all sorts of things. Uh, you can then specify for, you know, iPad, iPhone, etc. But you can also do, uh, you know, any in compact, any in regular width, any in compact, any in regular height. Uh, and you can specify various different images. So you can have that's like- so cool. So if you're, if you know, that the constraints that apply on iPad will result in an image view of a certain pixel dimension. You can have a bitmap of precisely that pixel dimension at 2x and 3x. Well, so one of the things that I did was rather than having a size constraint on a particular item in the thing, I would just kind of center it and let it take the image, the, the size, size. You know, the intrinsic size based on the, the asset. Yeah. And then you just pr- supply the asset and everything else kind of falls into place. So that's what I did. Uh, Fantastic. That's one of the things that I did. That sidebar hides so much kind of useful stuff. It's super useful, but yeah, it's sometimes you just don't see it. Yeah, there is so much in Xcode that I'm not aware of or that I am briefly aware of and then forget and it doesn't become part of my everyday practice. Another thing that I was showing was with storyboards, if you turn on the assistant editor, you can get a preview of what that scene's view will look like on a particular device and you can add multiple devices to the preview so you can have like an iphone landscape iphone portrait ipad all on screen at the same time and as you edit your constraints in the storyboard you see live previews in the assistant editor so this is one of the things that is good about storyboards it's very visual so it's really useful for doing things that are visual in nature, I guess, which I guess UI is, but at the same time, let's not get bogged down by that comment. <laughs> but doing things like, uh, there, there are things that make sense in to do with storyboards as opposed to any other way. If yep. you're going to use auto layout, it makes a lot of sense to use storyboards for that because the visual format for auto layout constraints and stuff like that is a lot simpler than even than using even with a library uh, code constraints. Yeah, and, and the storyboard editor has gotten heaps better at sh- at giving you feedback about how fully constrained a view is or not. Like you get blue lines when everything's good. You get kind of orange lines if the constraints in the frame disagree with one another, and the lines show you where the constraints think it should be and things like that. And you yeah, get red lines if you've got constraints that and these are things that you don't get with code yeah right? you can't like you know, the only feedback that you get when you use code based constraints is these constraints are wrong yeah fix you, them you get that in the debugger at runtime not at design time whereas right. with the storyboard editor you get design time feedback about your constraints i still think it's challenging to see at a glance what set of constraints apply to your view hierarchy constraints just they seem to sit everywhere like um in the storyboard editor on that left-hand panel, which I don't even know what it's called, the hierarchical, the view hierarchy panel. Yep. If you expand a view, you'll see some of the constraints that apply to that view, but the other constraints are listed in a constraints section further down. And I think the ones further down are constraints that apply to not one view on its own, but that view in relation to other views, you know, so they're kind of, I, I find it a little bit confusing that there's just this huge list of constraints and some of them are tucked away and some of them are in that big long list. And there are other ways of seeing them, like you can select a view and you get the constraint little bars shown on those blue lines. 
or in the right-hand panel, you can go into the kind of ruler icon, the metrics for the view, and see a list of constraints that apply. Um, but it just feels like unless you recently set up a set of constraints to lay out a view, I feel like it takes me a lot of clicking around to kind of rediscover, okay, what's driving the things in this view to appear where they're appearing? Like, how were the constraints set up again? Remind me, I've got to click a hundred different places to see it. Yeah, so, I mean, that I when I look at constraints in storyboards, which is rare, but when I do, like, I look at the lines yeah. and I get it straight away. It takes me ages. Away. But Especially maybe that's because I'm classes. used to, like, working with design tools and, you know, seeing how they're yeah. laid out in, in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. That was that was me criticizing storyboards, so just briefly. Yeah, just I know. I, 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 I heard it. I, co- it's, co- code it's is been... a little clearer in the sense that you can <sighs> have a series of statements that execute in one place and you can just see, like, this is all the stuff that is setting up the constraints. Whereas uh, the storyboard, it's kind of like you can sprinkle them throughout your views and you've got to kind of go and click on every view to see which constraints are applying to it. I still like my maths. Oh, yeah, I like maths, just visually maths, visual Yeah, maths. no, I, I, I'm, I, still, I am still using just plain old frame-based maths. Oh, cool. <laughs> you don't think that's cool <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, horses for courses, having, whatever, whatever floats you your boat. Having, you're having nightmare visions flashing through your heads. Oh, no, God. Uh, yeah. I, I just like. Yeah, yeah. We've heard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Discovering these new to me features of of Xcode that have actually been there for years uh, is making me more certain that I need to pay close attention at WWDC next week. Yeah. So I'm. I'm we can shelf that topic because I think it's worth. This is. I think this is the episode before the conference. Yes, this will be. Um. So I think at some point we should talk about the conference. But um, I've been well, thinking a bit about probably that part about of it. We'll probably talk about the conference after the conference. Oh, no, no, no. I want to talk a little bit about getting ready for it, what to expect. Okay. How to get the most out of it. Okay. Well, let's... Uh, we'll have a short little... We'll put it towards the We'll put it towards end. the end. But yes, that I think covers my love of storyboards. That was the thing I wanted to share. And since we last recorded, I've been using that feature even more. And uh, each time I use it, I'm learning more about the best way to do it. I kind of now want to start all of my projects again with this in mind from the very beginning. Yeah, that's that's a dangerous thing to be. Oh yeah, I'm not failing. going to. I'm not going to. But I think that next time I do a universal app, all of this thinking will factor in from the very beginning. Yeah. I think that's I think that's important, right? Like like the future proofing your app as much as you possibly can mm. is something that's really important. Although I've fallen into recently I've realized that uh my kind of um propensity for you know, trying to think as far ahead as I possibly can and being, you know, prepared for the future has kind of bitten me recently. Yeah. So there's that. Which is a great segue into our into the topic that I have because uh it's to do with it's to do with Dropbox and syncing. And they recently changed that? So all right. So to to kind of move into that, the the thing that kind of bit me was that one of the things that I planned with with Gifwrapped was not just syncing with Dropbox, but syncing with a bunch of different services. One of them potentially being iCloud. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, uh, despite the fact that nobody has actually ever seen it, uh, the feature the iCloud Sync has been in the app for a very long time. And can I just recap on this feature? The syncing is basically about having a library of animated GIFs that you can manage as files sitting on a cloud storage service right. so that you, are automatically 
synced with the set that are available in the app so that if you right. add one to your cloud storage thing next time you use the app it shows up and vice versa so folder of files yep uh on the device yep syncs with a folder of files in cloud service of your choice of your choice be that dropbox or icloud maybe so dropbox was has obviously been in there from day one it was one of the kind of features that was always there yeah um and I had iCloud sync as well sync sitting in there, although it's never been turned on and never I, been available for iCloud is kind of like Dropbox now. Like well, there is a no no iCloud. This is, this is prior to iCloud Drive okay. stuff. This is like iCloud. I was I was working with actual iCloud syncing files with like documents, like core data, sync? Oh, documents, and sync. data. Yeah. Uh, to sync files through iCloud so that you could have them across devices. Right. That particular part of the feature was never turned on yeah. because it was never finished. Yeah. And I needed to get my sync, like just, I needed to get my head around sync first. Mm-hmm. That was that was end of 2013. So, GIFRAP launched in 2014, early 2014. Yep. Uh, and iCloud sync was in there, but it was turned off and it was not available for anybody to see. And I'm still getting my head around sync because <laughs> sync is really hard, like really hard because there's so many variables when it comes to, to sync. And especially, especially when you're talking about like, okay, I've got a folder of files on a, on a device and I've got a folder of files in a cloud service somewhere, but I've also got, you know, three other devices that also have folders of files and they've all got to come together into, mm. you know, one cohesive thing. Mm. And so, uh, the entire year and a half that I've been working on GIFRAPT, I've been fighting with sync because it's just a matter of one small you know error means that you have duplicates everywhere or you end up deleting files that yeah both of those seem bad they're both bad mm. they're, they're both bad mostly I kind of erred towards the duplicate thing rather than deleting thing which is yep. kind of better but still bad yeah. So one of the things that I decided to do with now that they've changed that they're changing their API. So Dropbox recently announced that they are moving to a new API. Yep. Uh public API for syncing stuff. I'm assuming that there's a new SDK coming. I really hope there's a new SDK coming cuz their current S- the current core SDK is terrible, but they so they have a bunch of SDKs that are out there. Uh one of them is called a sync SDK. It's designed to be very, you know, a simplistic version of their SDK, which allows you to get a list of files and just kind of interact with those files. Um, useful for, you know, syncing a folder, which is what GIFRAPT uses. Mm. But I decided that with the move and needing to change, you know, to the their core API, which is kind of a more general open thing, you yep. can do whatever you want with it. With that move, I, f- I figured, well, now's it good chance for me to kind of really you know get to the heart of this this problem and, and solve it and you know having just now gone full indie uh you've got you can focus your attention got, on that task i've got so much attention that i can focus so i can just you know go full full hog in so what i'm basically what, what i've decided to do is i'm ripping out sync altogether and going with a completely different model that's not sync uh because sync is horrible and hard Right, and people have said that forever because, yeah. it, and the the fact is, is it's true. It's really true. Like, yeah. and do you always need sync? Like, is there, you know, your simpler model could be, you pick something to be the authoritative library. Well, that's the and thing. You just write a client that allows you to manipulate that library and cache, maybe. So the the problem with 
uh, sync is that there's so many variables, right? Yep. Uh, there is the variable of you know the things things change on the device. There's the variable of things change on the server. And then there's a variable of what becomes the the yep. thing that if you know two files have two separate things, what happens when they conflict? Yeah. So could you simplify it by saying the server is the authoritative library and the client is just a client to the server, and when you add yes. or remove items, you must be connected. So that yes, basically that's what I'm going to do. Except I'm taking it kind of a step further. That's basically how the Sync API was designed to work, which is their sorry, their Sync SDK was designed to work. You yep. drop it in, you have a list of files, you can get the file, work with it, put it back. Yep, that doesn't really work for GIFWrap because I mean, you kind of want to have the images on your device as much as possible. Oh, certainly you want like a local cache of you stuff. Want, you definitely want them locally as much as you can. Yeah, but at the same time, some people don't apparently want them local. That was a f- that's been a feature request that's been hitting me for a, a few months now. People have small space on their phone and their library yeah, okay. is too big. Yep. Uh, so they you know they don't want to have all their gifts on their device at all times. They just want to have sure. Some of them. And is that something you've got to deal with explicitly? You can't just rely on the cache eviction policy of iOS to clean out. Like if you're saving this data not in the documents directory but in the so if I put them in the caches directory, they will eventually get cleared out when they when OS decides that it needs to, right? Yeah. Does that work? Uh, I've put things into the caches directory that have never been deleted, so I'm guessing it seems to stay there for the most part unless you clear it out. So I kind of you know clear things out myself as I, as yeah, I okay. need to, just to kind of you know be be nice about it, use yeah. use my space, kind of be be a good citizen, good citizen of the yeah. of the device. But, you know, obviously that's no good if I want to have kind of permanent storage. So then mm. I have to have a separate thing. So I, uh, anyway, I'm what I'm doing at the moment and have been doing for the past week and a half, I guess, is building a new, quote, sync for, for GIF Wrapped and basing it on the core SDK, which is horrifying. Horrifying. So this is the core Dropbox SDK. This is the core Dropbox SDK. So this is a framework or library. I think it comes as a framework uh, that you can drop into your into your app, and you can link against it. But it's oh my god, it's like it's so old. It's, it's so old that it uses protocols for everything, and there's there is minimal documentation. Oh no, um, really? Yeah. So you basically there's a class that you use that basically wraps the API, right? And yeah. it has methods that you can call that match up with endpoints. But not all the endpoints that are available on Dropbox have been have been made available in the app in the SDK. SDK. Oh my gosh. And not all of the like the data that you get back from the API is made available in the SDK because it kind of wraps all the responses in actual objects and stuff like that. Mm. Um so instead of a you know NS dictionary, you get back a DB metadata object, which doesn't let you get any of the underlying kind of data that it doesn't provide, you know, properties for, which isn't ideal. And yeah, it's 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 old. Did I mention it's old? It's not been updated. Like it's been updated in like I think maybe it was updated at some point this year, but I don't think it was updated. Actually, no, it was last year. End of last year was was the last time it was updated, 2014. So you were um alluding to the fact that you feel like they're about to release some new stuff. Yeah. So do you not feel a little uncomfortable with making these widespread changes now when they could So one of the things that I'm doing is that I'm completely and utterly ignoring <laughs> 
entire SDK. Oh, right. Yeah. Because, well, it doesn't work for me, right? I want to be able to do one of the methods that they make available, one of the endpoints that they make, they make available in their API is something called long pole delta, which is a weird name for mm. a thing, a, basically an API call that you can make and it will sit there and block until there are changes available. So you basically make this call yep. and it will just sit there and sit there and sit there until it either times out with a timeout that you specify yep. or if there are changes, it will it'll actually return a response. Yeah. But until there are changes, there's no response. Or until there's a timeout, there's no response. Yeah, this is like a technique of hacking HTTP. This is like WebSockets without the WebSockets. Web yeah, <laughs> I think it's called um, XML HTTP request long polling. Yeah, yeah. So is- uh, it, they have a they have a an API endpoint that you can call with, with for that sort of stuff. Yep. And it lets you basically sit there and just wait for changes to happen, and then as soon as changes do happen, your request returns straight away. You you've, okay. you can basically detect them immediately. So yep. you know somebody deletes a file in, in in the you know Dropbox on the in the cloud, and then bang, it's changed on your device. That's not available as part of the SDK. Mm-hmm. So rather than doing that, what I've done is I've kind of I've opened up the the actual project. So they when they give you the SDK, the core SDK, they, it comes in two forms. It comes in a pre-built thing, drop it in, bang, done. Uh, it also comes in a project, right? Yeah. An Xcode project that you can open up and you can you can stick it in your open source. You get the source code for there. Uh, yeah, I mean they don't really have a method for kind of contributing back. Otherwise, I would doing so with vigor yeah because it's horrifying like and and it shows like the fact that it's not open source means that there are you know that everything returns as a protocol so you have to make an endpoint call with one of their rest client methods and then you have to then implement like three or four different uh protocol methods that return things like when successful when it errors out or when it times out and you have to implement all of those and you have to figure them out because they're not documented properly no okay so not ideal, but basically what I'm doing right is uh, I'm I'm using their SDK for the most basic of reasons, which is uh, actually you know logging in and logging out of the actual Dropbox account, which yep, they, their their SDK handles handles it by passing off to the app, which isn't something that you can just do. Yeah, like yeah. I'd have to rip that out, and by doing that, they can then store all of their OAuth stuff. Yep. And I can just use their AP, their SDK to sign my requests directly to the API. Mm-hmm. To do that, need a private method, but it's open source, so I figure that's kind of safe-ish, I guess. But so what I'm doing is, rather than using the SDK with all of their kind of, you know, convenience convenience quotes uh methods and uh and and objects and stuff like that i'm basically calling the sd the api the rest api yeah. directly and getting back and dealing with the api results directly yeah and wrapped that all up into a little class that kind of exists on its own so that i can kind of go well i feel safe because it's all encapsulated in one class that i can you know that if i need to i can change it <laughs> yeah okay you can swap it out yeah. if they do release something better if they do release something better, I can yep. make make adjustments and cool. make these changes without having to be too concerned, right? Yep. Even though the API is changing, the SDK is changing. But it kind of brings me to the thing that I wanted to talk about, which is what is better? Is pro- are protocols better? Are blocks better? Or are notifications better? Better for what purpose? What What are the goals you're trying to achieve by having something like a protocol or a block or a notification. Well, they, they all do roughly the same thing, right? They give you, they allow you to 
get feedback on something that is happening uh, that that has happened or is happening uh, within something like within an API. Or so you a, mean like um, be informed about the status of an asynchronous task, possibly, or be informed of a task that's happening elsewhere within the app or anything really. Because part of the part of what I'm doing is I'm wrapping up a, I'm wrapping up and kind of building my own client on top of the, the you know the API. Yeah, in order to be able to do the things that I need to be able to do. So I think my answer to your question, which is better, is that it depends. I have preferences. But I think it depends on the extent to which you're interested in different goals. So one one kind of requirement is you have two bits of, of communicating code, one that wants to know about what's going on in the other. A secondary concern might be that you want to keep those two bits of cooperating code separate from each other's implementation details because um, you might want to reuse bits. Like you might want your code that is informed about what Dropbox is doing to be able to be reused with a different cloud storage backend with minor modifications. So you don't want necessarily your code to have too much intricate knowledge of what Dropbox does because right. you might want to make it a little bit more generic. So I guess that this, this is loosely coupling. You want to have your code loosely coupled to the Dropbox code. And so protocols and blocks and notifications kind of could all let you achieve that, I guess. But the question is, like, when when do you use blocks and when do you use protocols and when do you use notifications? Okay. A lot of people kind of eschew notifications because yeah, they're, I don't they're, like notifications. they're terrible, right? And, I mean, Dropbox SDK uses protocols for everything. Because it's it's from a time prior to blocks, right? right? So, when you say protocols, I guess you mean also delegates. Is that yeah? So a delegate is a, a delegate is something that implements, implements a, protocol, a protocol, but yeah. it, you calls protocol methods in order to yeah. get things done. So the reason I don't tend to like notifications is to me the um, connection between the two bits of cooperating code is not clear because um, I can't go through the source code and see. What is so? I've got a method in my class that is executed at some point in time, and I can't see what's executing it. I can't see what's calling it because there's somewhere else, anywhere else in the app, could be posting that notification. Yep. And so, and there's no compile time checks for that, so I can't, you know, hold down the option key or whatever a command key and click on a line of code and jump to what's calling it. You usually notifications use kind of string literals or some sort of identifier to say I'm posting a notification called blah and if anyone else is listening for blah then they'll get it and have a chance to execute. And so it feels to me like something that's harder to debug, harder to kind of wrap my head around compared to an explicit method invocation or a function call where you can actually say, okay, this line of co- code is calling this method or function. So that's my personal preference just because I find it easier to understand where there's an explicit sort of Okay, then. so what about blocks versus protocols? Yeah, so to me, um, one of the benefits of a protocol is that it defines a set of related methods or functions that a client is expected to ha- to implement. So you can sort of um, group related things together and say, okay, if you want to be able to be notified of the sync status of this sync operation, you're expected to have these methods. And it typically means that there's a kind of one-to-one between the class that is going to know about what's happening and the class that's going to inform it. Whereas with um, blocks or closures, it's less clear that all of the, like you might still have the same sort of uh, API, I guess. You still might have a sync operation that has three or four things it could inform interested parties about. But with closures, you could potentially have four closures that are all independent of one another. 
being informed about the different things. Like they needn't all be defined in the same class. Some of them could be like a named method that exists in a class somewhere, or some could just be anonymous sort of inline functions. Yeah. And so I guess I've gone back and forth between using both. Closures seem lighter weight to me. It feels quicker and easier to write a quick closure to say, do this long running task. And when you're done, execute these two lines of code. That to me feels like a nice example for it because I tend to do an anonymous inline closure that says a callback, basically. When you're done, execute these two lines. Whereas if it's getting beyond two lines and it's quite a big chunk and it's a chunk of code that you know I might want to be able to call independently of that point in time, then having a separate method that it conforms to a, a protocol kind of feels nicer. So I have, whilst developing this thing, I've kind of come to a bit of a standard usage for the various different bits and pieces, right? Nice. Uh, for the Dropbox thing, I'm not using notifications at all because it doesn't really fit, but I have used notifications for, for stuff previously. For notifications, what I tend to use them for is for things where I just want to know that they've they happened in a different part of the app don't necessarily need to know anything about it or do anything with it other than maybe like kick off uh, you know a little thing that says okay we're doing something as a general rule i just don't do a lot with it so notifications are for very simple i just want to know that this is this is occurring somewhere cool i've got another example like that that i yep. think is good analytics so potentially you might want to instrument your app with various points you want to log something to an analytics service to say the user's gotten to this point, yep. done this thing. Yep. If you just put the analytics package, like call it in all of your view controllers, then you've got a tight coupling between your app and a specific analytics provider. Whereas another option could be that you'd come up with a notification scheme whereby different parts of your app post notifications, like um, a UI action has happened notification. Yep. And then one part of your app and one part only takes responsibility for listening to those notifications and logging them with an analytics provider if relevant. Right. So the other thing that notifications are useful for is that there are, so there are in your app delegate um, class, there are what, four methods that do things uh, that basically let you know when your app is going into the background, is you know shutting down and all that sort of stuff. But you can get them as notifications. So that, that means that you can, like within individual parts of your app, without having to like have your app delegate littered with calls to you know do various yeah. things that I had, I had a related. Thing just like this the other day, I had a, a view controller that lived in a certain tab of a tab bar controller and I wanted something to happen when it whenever it comes onto screen. And I thought that I could handle that with just view did appear. Yep. Um but you view did appear is not called when your app returns from being suspended, when your app is resumed. If that view controller was on screen when it's suspended and it remains on screen when it's view did appear is not called. So I was sticking some stuff in my app delegate to get the app did become active. Which couples your app delegate tightly with the, that view like controller. With the, yeah, your it view controller. Crazy. It was nuts. Much better to use that and notification. And so notifications, basically, you can get them from anywhere. They yep. are basically named exactly the same as what the method is called. And even then, they're in the, in the documentation for those specific methods, you can get the, the actual notification name, which is a constant that you it's can like just UI use. UI application of a did become active notification. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and so basically, that means that when you know your back, your app goes into the background, you can shut stuff down within. So, I mean, this is a thing that runs kind of in the background of the app. Like, it's not something that has a face. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's always running just kind of silently. 
and it means that I can kind of have that sitting off to the side. It's well and self-encapsulated. I could stick it in a framework if I wanted to. Yep. And uh, – See, when you say it like that, though, it still freaks me out a little bit, that you could have code that all runs kind of in the same circumstances, like finalization code that should run when the app's about to be backgrounded, sprinkled everywhere, and no easy place for you to, at a glance, go, okay, what does this app do when it's about to go in the background? Yeah, but you've I got mean, to like, you can, you've got to search you can, for a string, right? You you've got to say for that. You can search for that string, but yeah. the, I mean, those notifications are available as constants, so you can search for, for the, the constant, constant. Uh, as well. If you, as long as you actually use, but what that. if what if you've got a framework in your app that you've linked against? That is registered for that notification. Right. So one of the know. things that I currently use in in GIF Wrapped, which is, I mean, it's a framework that I've, it's a library that I've built myself, which is um, File Drone. It's my file folder monitoring library. Uh, when you start up a file drone to monitor a particular directory, it will automatically link itself to the um, to when it the app goes to sleep and comes back from sleep yep. to you know start and stop so that it's not detecting it's not trying to do it's stuff in nice. the background right it yeah. actually works really nicely yeah. it's it's you know you got to be smart about how you're using these things but as, as a general rule it's I think it's a better solution to have that start like have these kind of shut down you know okay let's just pause and let's resume yeah. kind of stuff in the actual library in the class that's actually using it rather than linking that class to the app delegate. Yeah, so the alternative would be to unnecessarily get a reference to that class in your app delegate and in your did become active, you'd tell that class to activate itself and in your did suspend, you'd tell the class to... Right. Yeah. And it means that it means also that you can then have multiple instances of that class. So let's say I wanted... I wanted to make it so that my you can have multiple Dropbox libraries linked. That's never going to happen, people. Please do not ask me for that. <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to do that, though, if I wanted to have multiple different libraries uh, that you know that all synced with Dropbox and all have that had their own kind of uh, client that ran that ran their requests and monitored monitored Dropbox for me, hmm. I wouldn't have to then go through and also in my app delegate say, okay, when it shuts down, just let's let's pause all these and let's resume all these when it yeah. comes back there it's it's in the class it's all it's all taken care of for me so i i that's what i that, that's what i use the notifications for right if i need to actually make that sort of stuff happen it, like elsewhere as well uh, on my end i yeah. do that so i'm strange enough that and i like explicitness enough that i've actually i think at some point i don't know if it's in a production app wrote an implementation of the subject observer pattern in my Cocoa apps, which is a similar way. Like, it, the, the problem is the same. You have multiple observers that want to be notified of changes in one subject, and one option is to use notifications. So you use NS Notification Center to post a notification and all of those observers register for that notification. An alternative is you use the subject observer pattern where the subject actually has a method called register observer and, the, and that takes an object that implements a certain protocol yep um like can observe file drone file drone observer protocol and in the subjects add observer method you just add it to a list of registered observers and then when the event that ha- want, you want to take place happens you iterate through that list and call notify on each of them and pass them the notification you want to send them and that's kind of the same idea of notifications but it's there are explicit compile time checks there there's code paths you can follow through you can break your debugger and look at who's currently listed as observers that are about to be notified. 
when a given thing happens, and that makes me feel safe. So I, one of the things that I do with, with with the new Dropbox thing that I'm kind of been, I've been working on is uh, I actually do have an observer thing going on. Yeah, cool. And so not using notifications for everything. I think that there there, is, there are some similarities, but I think there are there are times when you want to use one and not the other. Yeah. Like I don't want to have to register. I mean, I I mean, obviously I have to, but I don't necessarily think it's it's good planning for me to register like to uh, with a protocol to you know observe system time events and have you know this list of protocols that i adhere to and have various different methods within my app and stuff like that it's not it's not great it's it's not ideal for things that are system level or kind of generic very generic not you know that you don't necessarily need to be you know to, to be doing a lot with you just need to make some very simple things happen shut things down start things up kind of thing yeah thing that's what I use notifications for. The thing, one of the things that I'm doing with Dropbox, this Dropbox client that I've been writing, is using a protocol which I call JSM Dropbox Client Observer, which basically observes the JSM Dropbox client. So I register an observer that gets stored in a weak linked array of observers within my thing. There is a way of doing that. Yeah. So that I have an array that's strongly linked, obviously, but the items within it are weak links. So that if they go away, I can then detect it and not try to be calling. Yeah, that's protocols a good idea. on that. Yeah. Um, you're kind of using it in place of key value observing, mm-hmm. uh, because key value observing is messy and uh, it kind of causes your code to be a bit, a bit kind of complex, and I don't like it because uh, you have to be concerned about you know things going away and things you know lo- lots of stuff. Whereas I can call a protocol method, so you know, uh, client did update. Uh, metadata. Yep. So, and then I get, and then I provide it with a list of my metadata, and then I can do stuff. So then I can basically, uh, the metadata was updated. Okay, now I can, you know, update my interface to show all the new gifts or remove the gifts that that are no longer there. Hmm. But basically, the idea that I've got that I'm using it for is when I'm doing something that I'm not instigating with them directly. If I'm just wanting to know when things are happening. With something that I am kind of, you know, I'm kind of reliant on, so I am somewhat coupled to it. Yeah. If I want to know something that's going on, you know, without me having started it, that metadata stuff kind of all happens on its own. Hmm. Uh, I just want to know when it happens in that way. I can, so this protocol and uh, the observer setup that I have lets me get notified of when that stuff happens, and then I can do something with it in a different class somewhere else. Yeah, cool. but that class is linked directly to that Dropbox client. Yeah, and is very is very strongly coupled with it. Like it yeah. it knows like it has to know about that client. Yeah. And then there's blocks. Yes. So blocks, I use basically as a response to okay, when I, I'm asking you to do this thing, and here's a block that I want you to call when you when when you're done. Yep. Rather than storing blocks and passing them around and doing stuff like that. As much as possible, I try to. I'm trying to stay away from that. I think because it can create so many problems. I don't, I know that it's not necessarily a problem in Swift, but in, but in oh, no, I think C, uh, you you end up with all sorts of retain issues and stuff like that. Yeah, which I think that there are certainly still memory issues, and it's something that you've got to be aware of, right? Mm. So uh, by uh, by basically having a thing that ha- having the kind of approach to blocks where you okay download this item for me from this url and then tell me when you're done giving me the data so that yeah. i can can do something with it and so using a block in that particular instance means that i don't have to then you know, do it in a different method 
like I can keep it all encapsulated, but uh, I know that you know once that download is completed, mm. it's going like the the I'm no longer going to be retaining anything inside of that block. Yeah, yeah, it goes away. That seems like a good rationale for what to use when. I like it. And key value observing, I just don't. I just don't use key value observing. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. Okay. I mean, we've talked about key value observing before, right? I'm sure we have. The fact that we're now going on two years, I'm sure everything we've talked about, we've probably talked about before. Yeah. So I think like Ben has talked about it before because I know Ben uses it a lot. He talks about know. it like yeah. he talks about it like he uses it a lot. But key value observing is really useful for like you. You basically say, okay, I want to know when this value changes. And yeah. when it changes, you are uh, you know I will register or use this method, and you calls a specific method on your class, yeah. and then in that class you have to do things like okay, is this the correct object? Yes, is this the correct key path? Yes, okay, am I doing it at the right time and doing all these things? And okay, then we've got like it can. I feel like it's really messy. Yeah, it's interesting that um, on the desktop, Coco uh, for the Mac, key value observing also has kind of a partner thing key value bindings which are exposed through the interface editor and so you can you can do all sorts of weird stuff like with the combination of core data and bindings you can basically have a core data app that allows you to edit the data in your persistent store through a ui that you've hooked up without any code it's nuts like you can have like zero code you just go new document based or core data based app and then drag some views on and bind a view to something in your data model and you know you can get a long way with no code it's, it is kind of nuts but ios hasn't yet got support for bindings in that sense um that you can't bind like through just a single symbol drag and drop in interface builder you can't bind like a list view to a array in your underlying model you have things like collection view and table view where you implement a protocol to return the stuff instead yep so I wonder whether the idea of key value coding and key value observing and bindings is just falling out of date and isn't going to be kept up. Because these days on iOS, you've got things like Reactive Cocoa, which I think seems to be trying to solve a similar problem of yeah. having a way of running code in response to changes in state of various properties. I'm kind of really interested to see what is in the future. Like, will UIKit continue to evolve in the direction it's heading in? Will we see something an alternative approach like we've got things like um so we have run well and truly out of time but did you want to talk about dub dub sure what what do you think we can expect to see at dub dub this year well so i'm going this year uh and i haven't been i don't for think you mentioned that so so you might see me come and say hello if you do no so the reason i mention it is because i'm obviously really focused on it uh being having a chance to actually go and i want to make the most of being there so um one of the things I've been doing is re-watching videos from last year's because I think we'll see all of the, like, I think there's common sessions that are there every year, like what's new in view controllers and what's new in scroll views and stuff like that. Um, so I've re-watched all the Swift videos because I imagine we'll see Swift 2.0, whatever version of Swift is mentioned at WWDC. I'm sure we'll hear more about Swift. So I kind of wanted to revisit all of that. You know, make yeah, sure look, my Swift I, knowledge is up to date so I would that be I can be ready for the next bit. If they didn't have something new for Swift. I don't actually know what the new stuff for Swift would be. Like, the language feels really... I don't know. They've changed it a lot since they first introduced it. It's not like we haven't heard anything since last year. We've had several updates with lots of changes in them. And we've now gotten to a point where 
like all of the kind of rough edges have been smoothed off and there's the language is seem feels really nice so i i'm i don't know what to expect i don't i'm not like hanging out for any particular language features that i'm assuming they'll unveil that said i, I like they're going they're going to do something with it I, d- I very much doubt that they'll be like that they'll completely ignore this new language that they can comp- that they you know introduced last year i think i think there's every chance that they'll release they'll do something new with it that they haven't done, done before yeah, although i couldn't i couldn't tell you what that is there's been a lot happening with playgrounds like since last year's WWDC swift playgrounds have been coming heaps like you can now in a playground include resources like um graphics resources and stuff so the playground can you could almost have an interactive book that is a playground and i wonder whether there's going to be better tooling around that like to have to make that process easier so that playgrounds become a way of documenting an api for example you might download the api or go to the api's github page and instead of there'll be the github readme and there'll be the playground and you just start using the playground and it kind of shows you examples of how to use the api and they're live examples that actually execute the code and you can yep i don't know yeah i don't know what we're going to get in ui kit that's new i've got no idea what to expect <laughs> It's it's kind of exciting. This is a very interesting uh, predictions section of <laughs> of the show. Well, I wasn't, I Our wasn't predictions so... are we don't know what to predict. <laughs> so I wasn't so much wanting to make predictions about what's happening in the conference, but more I guess talk about um, the process of getting ready to go and or stay at home and watch the sessions. So um, my process last year when I went, yes, was that I I had vodka each night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'm sure there'll be ample opportunities for entertainment. I've signed up for the NS Hipster Quiz. Uh, in, in Instead of going to the uh, live, talk show. live talk show. Got a ticket to that as well. I can't decide yet. There are too many things on at the same time. I think I'm going to go to the quiz. You know, you know you don't have the ability to be at two different places at once. I, uh, yeah, I know. It's hard. I don't know. But no, what I meant um, more is... So, like, I've... um. I've raised some radars in preparation for the conference. So one of the things that I think being there lets you do over and above just seeing the session videos is you get a chance to talk to people one-on-one. And that's a great opportunity to say to people, I've encountered this bug. What, like, what am I doing wrong? Am I misunderstanding things? There are some better way of approaching this or is this an actual bug? And if you've got a radar already written that when the response is, have you logged it? You can say, yes, here's my radar. You know, it might, it can be a good talking point to let people know more details about the issue in the labs. Maybe you can work through it and help find a solution right there. So what did I log on about avoiding using cellular data to watch videos? Anyway, I've been basically going through all of the outstanding issues that I've got in current projects and sort of saying, is there something that I, a bug I can't get around? If there is, log it as a radar so that at the conference I can draw people's attention to it. I just would like to point out that my, my radar about, uh, the UI scroll view page size that we talked about yeah. several several episodes ago has not been even like it hasn't been updated or even like changed. It's not even filed as a duplicate. It's just, I, just I have there. to. I had that same feeling. So uh, I get this every time. I also, Whenever I log into Apple's bug reporter, I feel like it's a waste of time because I don't get any feedback. Like I, there's a bunch of open bugs sitting there whose status have not changed since I submitted them, and from what I understand, internally, it may have changed. There may be like fields in Apple Bug Reporter that internally Apple use to add information to user-submitted bugs, but it doesn't change the outward-facing stuff. 
So as someone that reported the bug, you don't know whether no one's looked at it or whether someone's looked at it and 100 people have left comments on it and they're actually actively tracking it. You've got no way of telling the difference between those two. So from an outsider's perspective, it just feels like shouting into a black hole. Anyway, I've shouted into the black hole in preparation to maybe meeting someone who I can then say, hey, have you seen this thing I shouted into the black hole or heard it? <laughs> Hang on, mixing my metaphors here. Yeah. Um, I'll mention yours as well while I'm there. Give me the, yeah, that would be, give me the radar number. That would be great if you could I'll do that. that I, 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 I set this one on. I, I put this one in to help you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got one on the same issue. So filing radars is something I think is useful to do in preparation. Also, um, I've been trying to create uh, sample projects that are a reduction of the bug so that if I do get an opportunity to sit down with someone in a lab, I've got like less code to dig through to get at the issue, just a kind of reduced sample of the problem to, to look at. Okay. So insofar as, I mean, obviously it's hard because you don't know what sessions are going to be there and you don't necessarily know what labs are going to be available. No. What is your plan as far as, okay, sessions that you must see and labs that you must attend? Yeah, that is hard. I don't know yet. I mean, obviously the keynote. And State of the Union sets the scene. Yep. And then from there, I guess I'm going to come up with a list. With the sessions, I feel like I always feel like there will be videos. So if I don't get to go to it in person, I can catch up with the video. However, having said that, the the thing that's rare about going is that I'm actually dedicating a full week of my time yeah. to learning stuff. Well, and that's the problem, right? Because if you if you're not going to be at the conference, uh, hello. My name is Jelly. Oh, I, I coming this year. Uh, <laughs> so, if you're not going to be at the conference, or for some reason you, uh, you, you, you go there and you, you know, skip a bunch of, uh, you know, of panels or, or whatever, I think you, li- I, I think you miss out because I think what ends up happening is you don't, you, you never have that same uh, att- attention that you yeah. d- it, later on. Um, you'll never watch like even if you do watch the videos later on, you're not as focused on what they they provide the information that they're yeah, providing exactly. you with. It's just not as as big a a bigger focus for you. And yeah. so what you, I think you I think you miss out a little bit with that. Um, and I mean, and that's kind of part of the reason why I'm like you know Dub Dub is way way different to you know the tech talks that they do. Yeah, it is because that information that they give you at Dub Dub you don't get it anywhere else unless you watch the videos. And yep. even if you watch the videos, you don't get the you don't get quite the benefit as as if you were sitting in the room yeah. at the time. And and on that point, I think that the real benefit is is the relationship between the sessions and the labs and the lunchtime conversations and the follow up session the next day and the follow up lab. So my plan is to try and make the most of this opportunity by getting myself as ready as I can before the sessions begin. So I guess revising all of the stuff from last year getting around to trying out things that I hadn't tried out. Like I'm thinking of trying to dust off some iCloud stuff again, your cloud kit, because I was kind of excited about that last year and I spent a couple of hours messing with something after watching one of the sessions online. And I feel like if I'm going to go along to a cloud kit session this year to find out what's new, I'll I'll get so much more out of it if I've got some experience with the existing API. Yeah. And so I'm trying to do that, pick the technologies that I think are good candidates for learning more about what's new. Like I think maybe CloudKit will continue to evolve and there might be some new stuff that's worth knowing about. Um, so that's one. Swift, I've obviously been using it heaps, but I was really surprised the other day when I rewatched the Swift videos that there was stuff that I've, despite having used Swift pretty much full time since it was in beta, there's stuff that I just, I just didn't know. Right. And 
it was in those sessions. So if I paid, like, I guess when I watched those sessions, I hadn't started using it. And then when I started using it, I started using it a particular way and then didn't think to go back and watch the videos. And now having done that, it's like, oh, I could be simplifying my life so much by doing... So the thing that you mentioned about size classes yep. earlier... That earlier was in, in the sessions. Episode, that was in the session. Yep. Is that how you learned about it? No, I didn't. Someone showed me. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So all of this stuff. So basically I'm trying to pick some videos from last year to rewatch, to re- refresh, and pick some technologies to actually do some stuff with. So I'm prepared. And then when I'm at the conference, my goal, and I don't know if this will pan out if I'll have the time, is if I hear about something new in a session, I'm going to try and rush to download the SDK and build something little using the new thing so that I can then go to a lab with my new partially built thing and have some sensible questions and some sensible wow. like a, and, and, and then hopefully go to the follow you know how you sometimes have introduction to cloud kit and then intermediate cloud kit it'd be good to have attended a lab in between so that i can go to the intermediate one and have had a chance for some of the concepts to settle a bit yeah look, that's my like i i don't necessarily know if that's super possible i know that some people did it last year uh, like some people, some people do manage it, but I, I don't know. There, there's there's so many things that are going on. You kind of end up with a, like dub dub is the sort of thing where you just have to choose what you you do, and you kind of have to do it with no regrets. Like yeah. you have to just you have to make a decision about what what your goals are for the conference and just go for it full on. Yeah, because uh, you know you can have to make the choice between okay, I'm going to go to a bunch of sessions and try and take in all the information that I can possibly do, and and then I won't actually get to play with any of it really, really very much. Um, but I'm going to you know take in all the information, kind of let it kind of happen afterwards. Or you can kind of try and select the inform- the information, which seems to be what you're doing. Select what information you want to take in, work with it as much as you possibly can, and kind of come out of Dub Dub and feel a lot more kind of. Uh, oh, I want to do both, right? I want to go to all the you sessions. Can't do that. That's and not possible. Play with all of the new stuff. It's not possible. So I can go to all the labs. It's not and, possible. Yeah, I know. Because you've got because on top of that, you've also got like, okay, well, are you going to like make use of the fact that you've travelled, uh, you know, for fifth. 15, 14 hours to a 20, country on... 22. 22 hours to a country on the other side of the world where you're going to be in the same place as a whole bunch of other developers that you can talk to. Because if you're going to be attending all the sessions or attending sessions and then actually sitting down and just writing code, you're not going to have time to then also you know hang out with other people. And you can't... Like you can do, you could probably do as much of all three as you possibly can, but it's not. I don't necessarily. You're think saying it's a good I, idea. I can't have my cake and eat it too. I, you can't have your cake and your pie and your ice cream I, and I, eat all of them because I, you will, you will come out of it feeling very sick. I have a separate dessert stomach. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You make a very good point. And also, this year, it's been a few years since I've been. I think the last time I went was in 2010, 11, something like that. And this year there is not only WWDC but AltConf and Bring Your Layers, Layers Conference. Layers Conference. Mm. And there's like a Reactive Coco one-day conference and there's, you know, all of these evening activities. Yeah, you know, evening and, activities and things that happen on the side. Yep. And, um, people like, you know, um, Twitter and all that sort of stuff have parties and and – all sorts of things happen. You yeah. t- typically, like people will have um, meetups outside of the thing for various different 
group yeah. still probably be a Swift meetup and an Australian developers meetup and a meetup for designers and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of like this. Yeah. If you went, you could literally be doing something pretty much all of the time and get maybe four or five hours of sleep a night and keep on going. There you go. That's my plan. And then you'll you come home and your the, the following week will be like the week that I had the the following week after uh, after Dub Dub and you will be crook as hell. Yeah, I don't think I'm allowed to. I had, uh, I had con crud afterwards. It was not great. Oh, it doesn't sound good. I just plan to sleep on the plane on the 22 hours back, but maybe maybe that's not enough recovery time. But yes, um, I guess that was, that was what I wanted to talk about briefly, and we've probably gone way too long. But um, that whole how to get the most out of the conference, and there's a bunch of people that have written blog posts about first timers guide to WWDC and a veterans guide and what to do to get the most out of it. But I guess um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of my approaches in terms of the content. Um, trying to familiarize refamiliarize myself with the stuff that was new last year that I still haven't had a chance to play with so that when there are sessions about it this year, I've got a kind of, it's fresh in my mind and I've got a good starting point. Trying to find opportunities when the new stuff is announced to have a bit of a play with it ahead of the labs because I think the labs are the thing that you can't recreate outside of DubDub and I think the labs are way more useful if you've got something concrete to play with in the lab where you can sort of sit down with an engineer that's working on a particular technology and say, okay, I've made a start but I don't get this. Yep. Um, Because that's your opportunity to kind of get a real, in situations in the distant past where I've done this, I feel like my knowledge of a new framework has gone from knowing nothing about it to kind of intermediate level in a few days. Whereas outside the context of the conference, it might have taken me months to get to that point. Right. And this is part of the reason why why I think, uh, you know, my approach last year was, okay, I'm going to take in as much information as possible. I did no code while I was there. I basically did nothing. I, you know, made as much opportunity to meet people at lunchtime and stuff and outside of the conference hours. When the conference was on, I was just in sessions. So if there was a session available, I was at one. Yeah. So sometimes in the past, I felt there were holes in the schedule where there was nothing that overlapped with my interests. Like there was, um, maybe this is the distant past where there used to be like an IT track, like for system administrators learning yeah, about okay. like so OS 10 server and no, they don't. no I mean, IT OS track anymore. server doesn't really exist. Anymore. But anyway, yeah. so uh, one, one of the things that like that happened last year, right, was that there was um, there was a moment where there was kind of a bunch of different panels on that I was none of them I was particularly interested in. And I went along to one that was about beacons. I wasn't particularly interested in the whole, the whole thing. Did and you it was say bacons beacons, or beacons? Beacons. There was a beacon panel? There was a beacon panel. And I wasn't particularly interested in any of the other panels, and that was possibly the highest-ranking one that I could think of. But I went to it anyway, and I, you know, I don't think I've used anything out of it. But I, I like, I appreciated the the ability to actually, you know, sit down and and listen to something that I wasn't necessarily sure yeah. if I was interested in it or not. Yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I made the op- I made the kind of if there was a session available for me to watch, and I wasn't necessarily interested in it, but maybe it would actually be useful for me. I went anyway. Mm. If there was a session that was available that I wasn't particularly interested in, I just, you know, and I didn't have any other sessions, then I would go to, I would go to it. I, I treated last year's dub dub as just kind of this big, okay, put all this information into my brain. Just, just do it. People just in there, get in there. It'll fit. Just, just, just squish it in. All right. There we go. Good. Got it. That sounds great. So what's your approach going to be this year watching remotely? Well, I think I'm kind of, my hands are kind of tied. Uh, this year, right? Because I can't be there. No. There's no possibility for me to be there. But you're in a situation so, work-wise where you could dedicate the week to it, could you? Or? Right. I could dedicate a week to, you know, taking in the information. 
I could dedicate a week to taking in the information and doing some things with it. I don't have the ability to, you know, obviously get out and meet the people that, you know, I want to want to kind of meet and hang out with that I haven't seen since probably last year because, you know, developer friends from all over the world. Hello. I'm feeling sad for you. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Jake will be there so you can all kind of stare at him from across the room. <laughs> Please Just don't. Just stare. Please don't. That, that would be what I would do, people. That would be what I would do. Just stare at him. Make him feel really uncomfortable. Uh, I can't do that this year. I can't stare at you. I mean, I can, but that's that's you would, know. Would you like? Would you like me to take a, a little picture of you? Like, <laughs> just look at from time. I to can't. Time. Uh, I can't also like attend any labs. And I did go to one lab last year, uh, but I can't. I can't do that at all this year. So I think part of what I'm going to do this year is just much the same as what I did last year: is take as much information as I possibly can. Um, probably do a little bit with it because I'll be, I'll be here and I'm not going to have like lunch times to go out and hang with people. Are you going to install all the new stuff? And if so, when and how? So I'm part of my preparations is I'm trying to think about what computing device to take with me and to make sure that I have the ability to install new stuff. Yep. I don't know whether that means a new Mac OS. Like sometimes, so for example, last year, I think it would have been worth installing a new Mac OS, a new Xcode, new iOS, because things like CloudKit, right? Like if you want to really mess and continuity and some of the features required the new version of both OSs to work properly and you wouldn't be able to like go to a continuity lab and say, how does this thing work unless you had the okay. new OS on both devices. But So in in regards to OS X, um, last year Yosemite, when it was released at, at DubDub, it was, it was horrifying. Like it was just not good. Yeah, um, but I mean, problems. so you could potentially, if I went with a, a if, blank partition, but right, if ready you want to, boot camp or if you want to have a play with it, go with a blank partition. Or VM, right? You can virtualize Mac OS X within Mac OS X. I would suggest create a blank partition on your drive if you've got the space for it. Uh, if you don't have the space for it on your external drive, your drive, external. you could try an external drive. You probably want to focus on something that's got like Thunderbolt yeah. or like a high speed connection. You're looking at my MacBook Air. And I'm feeling sad. It has as well. it has Thunderbolt. There's a Thunderbolt port right there. I can see it. Oh, that's what that little squiggly line with the arrow. That's a means. Thunderbolt. <laughs> awesome. It's a lightning bolt, but it's a Thunderbolt. That's a Thunderbolt port. So you, you, if you have a Thunderbolt, is there such a thing as a bolt of thunder? No, that's. But you can't really call it a lightning bolt because then there's lightning cable. Connect. It's a different thing. So if you're gonna if you're gonna take an external drive, I would suggest it be Thunderbolt or mm. something equivalent, like fast, very fast. You don't want to be using like a yeah, USB no. to that connection. Would be awful. Because that would that just ruins yeah. it. One of the mistakes I made is I didn't take go with a partition. And so when I was trying to set up a partition while I was there, it was complicated because yeah. I didn't have a drive to stick stuff on. And, and knowing hard. myself the way I know myself, I am going to want to install the new stuff. Like so, I'm not going yeah. to help. Make a partition on that. What about the watch? Buy a new and watch. With When it comes to portable devices and iOS and stuff like that, um, I would probably suggest you don't install the first beta on your carry phone. Carry phone. And in fact... Apple would suggest that you don't install any of the betas on yeah. any carry phone so, that you have. So don't do that. Just don't do it. And especially the first. Yeah, but I give in at about beta three. My um like my iPod touch, for example, is dedicated is my dedicated iOS seven test device. Because the problem is you cannot downgrade ever anything. So as soon as I upgrade that iPod touch to anything, so say I wanted to upgrade to the latest beta, I've now no longer got an iOS seven test device. So Apple's uh, Apple's suggestion would be to have like basically fistfuls of iPod touches or iPhones 
and only ever install one OS on each. Okay, and so leave it as the dedicated device for testing that OS. Okay, so whatever you do, I don't care, I don't care <laughs> what you do. Do not install the first beta on your carry phone. That is a recipe for absolute and utter disaster, and you will regret it, <laughs> guaranteed, or your money back. Thank you for that. That hot tip. I think I think you're probably right. <laughs> um, I would suggest if you do if you do have a spare device like an old phone or something like that, take that along. Yeah. And use use that instead. In reality, I think that I'll get sufficient this year. I'm not anticipating huge changes that really would need need the new macOS. I'm thinking that there'll be a beta of Xcode, which I can happily install alongside my existing one, and I can use the new simulator. Yes, we'll we'll see how that pans out. We will. I would suggest taking if you have a spare device, take it take it with you. Yeah. Just just as just 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 in case, because look, it's probably going to happen. Yeah. I I always give in about beta three. I just go, yeah, let's let's uh, let's ride the wave, people. Oh well, I think we've got enough preparatory tips for getting the most out of Dub Dub. Let us know your tips for getting the most out of Dub Dub, whether you're going or whether you're attending remotely. Right. So if you are at Dub Dub and you have tips, tweet at us, and we will. Tweet it on, I guess. Because this comes out... This comes out prior to DubDub. Prior, a week before. Good. This comes out the week before DubDub. Got a week to let us know your tips for getting ready. So if you have if you have tips on how to get ready for DubDub, then yeah, let us know in the week leading up to DubDub and, and we, we, will, share we will share them uh, on, on Twitter. So that's underscore mobile couch and we'll tweet them from there you know, and, and share them with, with mm. people. Um, if you have, uh, if you would like to read any of the things that we've talked about previously with the protocols, methods, things, SDKs, something or other about storyboards, uh, and videos, I guess, uh, you can, you can read all that on our website. We have show notes. Show notes are at mobilecouch.co forward slash 58 because we're at episode 58. Uh, you can also get in contact with us. Uh, via email, if you if you would like, and you can send your tips to there, but they won't. We can't tell people about them until the week after Dub Dub, so you know there's that. Uh, but if you want to get into contact with us and tell us about how you use protocols and delegates and notifications and all that sort of stuff, if you have any suggestions on how how that should work and how you think that works, then get in touch. Our email is hello at mobilecouch.co, or you can get in touch with us on the website mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Jake is on Twitter. He is McMullen. That's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. And if you're at DubDub and he's at DubDub and you you just really want to meet him, then you should tweet at him and kind of take it from there. Yeah, but be nice people. He's going to be overwhelmed by like all the things that he is apparently doing all at once. (laughs) You can also get in touch with me. I am JellyBeanSoup on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch with Ben, who is... Still surprisingly absent. Here's Ben Trangrove, B E N T R E N G R O V E. He'll also be at Dub Dub this year. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was great to speak to you again. Thank you to our Patreon patrons for supporting the show. We are very, very grateful for your support. We look forward to talking to you at Dub Dub and also afterwards. We will see you then. Goodbye. Bye.